You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our service this morning is titled, He is Risen. You know, this year, coincidentally, we're also, or Easter Sunday also happens to fall on April Fool's Day, something that only happens, I think, once about every 62 years or so. And traditionally, many historians say that April Fool's Day dates back to the year eight, or 1582, 1500s, uh, back when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, as was called for at the Council of Trent in 1563. But because the news traveled so slowly in those days, there were still many in France that were celebrating the new day, or the New Year's Day, on April the 1st. And so their compatriots, the other people in France that knew that the calendar had switched, they began to make fun of those people. And they became... They came to be the butt of many jokes, one of which was to get a paper fish hung on your back when you were walking through the town, and you were called an April fish, which was said uh, to be a fish that was young and easy to catch. Also in Scotland, on April Fool's Day, it was a day in which people were sent on phony errands. They were sent after a particular kind of bird they called a gowk which was a dodo bird and didn't exist in Scotland. So they were out looking and hunting for this bird that didn't exist, which reminds me of a prank that somebody pulled on me on April Fool's Day. I was just a young PFC. That's private first class in the United States Marine Corps, more commonly known as primarily for cleaning, right? (laughs) But my squad leader sent me to the headquarters building to get my BA 1100 November form. So I went to see the clerk, and I looked for my BA 1100 November form. They sent me upstairs to get a BA 1100 November form. They sent me to the the, uh, officer's uh, uh, room, and I asked for the BA 1100 November form. And to my relief, finally, somebody opened up their desk and pulled out a little red balloon. And they said, here you go. I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. There's a BA 1100 November form, just in case you were wondering. A balloon. All I can say is you got to keep your eyes open today because you never know what might happen on April Fool's Day. Kids, check what's inside of those wrappers, okay? I won't say anything else. For me, I think April Fool's Day dates back much further to the first century when Jesus Christ played the very first and ultimate April Fool's Day trick on everybody. You see, everyone, the Sanhedrin, the Roman government, even the disciples, they thought he was gone for good. But later on, on Easter Sunday, Jesus came out of the tomb and the joke was on them, wasn't it? April Fool's, guys, here I am. I'm I'm alive. Paul, when he was speaking about this, he he talks about the, the resurrection as being something that is so important that if it's not true, then we are fools. And this really is our holiday, April Fool's Day. But if it is true, then it is those who don't believe that are having the trick played on them by the devil. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14 reads like this, if you have your Bible. It says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You see, Paul hangs everything 
upon, or everything about the Christian faith upon the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is. And he's not the only one to do so. You see, an obvious conclusion for you and me here today, if we're Christians, is that this day had to happen. Pastor Timothy Keller from a New York City church, and he's a philosopher as well, he said this about the resurrection. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we better pay attention to what he had to say. Another man who was an atheist became an agnostic and later confessed Jesus Christ as his Lord, Lee Strobel. He said it like this. He said, in short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life if I had, or than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine emotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step that I could possibly take. So two, two great men in our time that realized the obvious importance of the resurrection. There are many, many others, of course. Uh, Josh McDowell, a, a professor at Biola University, he has spent more than 700 hours studying the resurrection, coming to the conclusion that if it's not true, then Jesus and his disciples pulled the biggest and the most cruel prank on all of mankind. It's, it's obvious here that we need to understand why we believe the resurrection happened. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to give you five different evidences that we as believers have and need to be able to give as a defense for what we believe. First of all, we have the Roman crucifixion because you can't have a resurrection unless you have a death first. Well, thanks to the Roman Empire... They provided the death by which Jesus Christ died. Crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians, but it was perfected by the Romans. Death by crucifixion was not for the faint of heart. To say nothing of what Jesus would have experienced at the hands of the Sanhedrin, what he faces from the Romans was cruel and unusual punishment. Let's start with the scourging with the flagellum. The Romans had that famous cat o' nine tails in which weaved into the strands of the whip were pieces of stone and lead and glass. And there was, of course, the Jewish rule that no man, no criminal could be whipped more than 39 times. That was according to Jewish law. But let's remember here, the Romans didn't abide by Jewish law. And so we know that Jesus uh, would have faced a brutal whipping from the flagellum of the Roman soldiers that would have bit into the skin of the flesh of his back and, and torn it to shreds that day. And it's a wonderful picture of how Jesus Christ's blood covers the sin of you and me turning our back on God 
and walking away and doing our own things. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ's blood covers that sin. There was also the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns that the Roman soldiers pressed upon his head as they mocked him and beat him with sticks saying, you're the king of the Jews. Look, the king of the Jews. They would have thrust that crown into his skull and as the blood flowed over his face and over his eyes and over his ears, hey, he bled from his head that day to cover the things that you have said, the things that you have heard, the thoughts that you've had that are not good and not true. Jesus bled to cover your sins. But not only that, he was also mounted to the cross after carrying his own crossbeam through the city to Golgotha, And then he was mounted on that cross with the nails being put right through the wrists of those old iron nerves there in the, in the wrist there between the two bones. And that was what his weight was suspended on. And then again through his ankles as they pinned him to that tree with the Roman nails. And then as he hung from the cross itself, Jesus would have had to fight to take his very breath. And as time went on, his shoulders would have slipped out of joint. He would have had to push off of that nail with his feet and to strive for breath, rubbing his back along the edge of that rough wooden cross. And that is what Jesus endured. Most criminals died after the flagellum beating, after the scourging. But not our Jesus. He was a true man's man, a carpenter from Nazareth, a man who was strong, A man who was able to endure much punishment at the hands of the Romans. And after six hours on the cross, he finally died a death of asphyxiation. And the Roman soldiers there at the foot of the cross, taking their spear, plunging it into his side. The Bible tells us that outflowed blood and water. Jesus Christ bled from seven places that day to cover all of your sins and my sins. His head, his back, his hands, his feet, and his side. And out of that side came the blood and the water to cleanse you, to cleanse me, to cleanse sinners from sin and to set us free. He did that for you. Think about it this morning. Take a moment, pause, and think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus died on that cross in your place. That could have been you. Can we get the picture of Jesus on the cross? That could be you hanging right there. That's what your sin before a holy God deserves. He took upon himself what each one of you deserves so that all who believe in him can be forgiven and have eternal life. Praise the Lord. When this was finished, we're told in Mark's fifth gospel, or in Mark's, sorry, not the fifth gospel, that would be uh, erroneous, sorry. Mark's gospel, the 15th chapter, verse 45, that the centurion, the Roman officer who was in charge of Jesus Christ's death, we're told that he was, uh, uh, he confirmed the death of Jesus to Pilate with a death certificate. And only then, after confirmation of the death of Jesus Christ by Roman crucifixion, Did Pontius Pilate allow Joseph of Arimathea to take that body and to prepare it for burial? So that's our first evidence, guys. If you're going to have a resurrection, you have to be dead first. Jesus Christ most definitely died, giving up his spirit 
In the seventh hour, he said, it is finished, meaning your sin, my sin, has been paid for. Praise the Lord. The second evidence this morning for the uh, resurrection is the intense death and persecution of the disciples. The intense death and persecution of the disciples. You see, the same disciples who were afraid, who were hiding out in the upper room, who were unsure of what to do after the death of Jesus, they suddenly changed. You see, after they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead, they were filled with boldness. And they began to proclaim the truth of what they had seen to everybody that they met. In fact, when they were imprisoned by the authorities and instructed to keep it on the down low, to not preach the gospel anymore, guess what they said? Hey, we have to obey God and not men. We have to obey God and not men. It was so real to them. It was so passionately in their hearts. They so believed intensely in the truth of Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead on the third day, that they didn't even deny it to their deaths. Historians, men like Flavius Josephus and Eusebius and others, both secular and Christian, record for us in their writings that for preaching the gospel, Matthew was slain with a sword at, a dis- at the distant city in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria, northern Egypt, after having been cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hung upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less, as he's called in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. And when he landed, guess what? He was still alive. So the Jews there began stoning him, and one of them approached him and basically bashed him over the head with a club, killing him. But his last words before they hit him, according to the historian Eusebius, was, I entreat thee, Lord God our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Notice, those are the same words that his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uttered from the cross. It was real to him. Philip was hung up against a pillar at Hierapolis in the province of Phrygia. And Bartholomew was skinned alive for his faith. Andrew was bound to a cross and left to die. And Thomas, the former skeptic of the resurrection, he was run through the body with a lance in Coromandel in the East Indies for preaching the gospel. Now I find it very interesting that the very man who Jesus told that there was only one way to the Father, after having seen Jesus and touched his hands and his sides, after he saw the risen Lord, he went off to India, where there is 330 million Hindu gods, and he preached that Jesus Christ was the only one true way to the Father. The only God by which we might be saved. And he paid for that preaching with his own life. There's a memorial to him that stands today in the city of Madras, India. Jude was shot to death with arrows for his faith. Matthias, the apostle that was chosen to replace Judas in the upper room, he was first stoned and then beheaded for preaching the good news of Jesus. Barnabas was stoned to death by the Jews at Salonika. Paul, a former enemy of Christ, he became, uh, after various tortures and persecutions, beheaded there in Rome by the Emperor Nero and Peter, 
the beloved apostle with the big mouth and foot in the mouth disease, just like me, he died being crucified upside down in Rome. So as you can see, guys, these disciples really believed. They sealed their testimonies with their blood. Now you might say, well, lots of people have died for what they believe in throughout history. Well, of course. But there's not many that have died for what they thought was a lie, for what they knew was a lie. In fact, I don't think anybody's willing to die a gruesome, torturous death for something that they know is a lie. And what sets these disciples and apostles apart from the martyrs and the suicide bombers of today is that these men had walked and talked with Jesus. They were that close to him. They could have gone to the empty tomb in Jerusalem and said, hey, didn't you lay him here? Didn't you surround this tomb with 16 Roman guards? Four of who would have been on, on duty while the other 12 slept in a semicircle in front of this tomb? And yet, where is he? Where's his body? So he is risen, and the intense persecution and radical deaths of those who followed him, all of the apostles, all the disciples, hey, that is great evidence that they knew that Jesus Christ was alive. If he hadn't really risen from the grave to conquer death, you'd think that they would have given up and not endured such a torturesome, gruesome death. Our third evidence this morning that the resurrection, that he is risen, is that social structures for many thousands of Jews in the heart of Judaism, in Jerusalem, the holy city, they changed. First of all, there was the monotheistic view of God that changed to a triune view of God. Many thousands of Jews knew that it would be blasphemous to worship anyone other than the God of the scriptures, the God of the Torah. But they began to worship and pray to Jesus Christ as a member of the triune God. They saw Jesus Christ as God. And they worshipped him as such. A second social structure that changed was the sacrificial system that was eventually abandoned. Many thousands of Jews now saw that the blood of animals was no longer necessary. They didn't need to bring that Passover lamb because Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sins of the world. They realized that. And of course, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, hey, that sacrificial system, it, it, it went silent. It went silent as if God was saying, hey, the direction you need to turn, the one who will save you, the blood that, that, that takes away the sins of the world is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, there was the expectation of a political Messiah. You see, the Jews were waiting for that political Messiah, but their view was changed now to accommodate the suffering servants of Isaiah chapter 53. And all of this took place in Jerusalem. Again, I I, I stress that fact. The very same place that Jesus was crucified and buried. You know, if all of this was untrue, then all that the Jewish leaders would have had to do to stop these social changes was to take the leaders of the church back to the grave of Jesus Christ and show him that he would show them that he was still inside that would have stopped the spread of christianity but guess what the tomb was empty the followers of jesus increased and here we are today fulfilling prophecy of jesus christ that nothing not even the gates of hell can stand against the church of jesus christ amen 
Also, we have the fourth uh, witness this morning, or the fourth evidence of eyewitness testimony. In your Bibles there again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I invite you to read, uh, following along in your Bible, verses 3 through 8. It says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. And after that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Listen, Paul is issuing a challenge with this scripture. He's issuing a challenge to anyone who doubts the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Paul is adding credibility to the resurrection account by listing others who were alive then who could back up his story. What's the strongest kind of evidence that you can get in a court case? It's eyewitness testimony. Somebody that was there. And if their story corroborates with other evidence, and even if there's more than one eyewitness, hey, guess what? That jury's going to be convinced. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit convinces your heart this morning of the truth of the gospel The good news of Jesus Christ is that He can forgive sin. He can give new life because because He rose again from the dead. What better evidence could we ask for? Video footage? Well, you're in luck because I found some. Just kidding. April Fool's, right? I told you, you got to be on your toes this morning. They didn't have video footage in those days, guys. There was no Instagram to post to. Look, there's Jesus on the cross, you know. It didn't work like that, guys. There was eyewitnesses. Paul says, hey, there's still 500 or more that are alive in my day. Our last piece of evidence that I want to look at with you this morning is the evidence of new life in Christ. Now, this is, I believe, one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus And that is the countless millions of people who have received new life in Christ. Who could say amen this morning to that? I can. I, for one, am so blessed and grateful that Jesus Christ died on that cross for my sins and gave me chance after chance after chance. And it's still going, guys. His blood still covers my sin. Jesus changes everything. Because he died, because he rose again, you and I now have the opportunity to have new life. He changes you and me from the inside out. He convicts us of our sin, draws us close to him, shows us that we've got to change, and then gives us the power to do so. You remember how we talked about how Jesus died? Remember All that he went through on that cross that day for you and for me. The flogging, the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, the spear in his side. Listen, the miracle in all of that is that Jesus Christ suffered willingly. He suffered willingly. He submitted to his Father's will. That's the miracle. 
Because at any moment, he could have called down a legion of angels from heaven and obliterated the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin. He could have done whatever he wanted. But what was it that caused him to hang willingly from that tree for six hours? The Bible tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised all of that shame that was heaped upon him. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He hung on that cross willingly to save and to save sinners. He's a Savior because He saves you and He saves me. Friend, you and I have committed great sin. And that sin has cut us off from God. But I have good news for you and me this morning. For while I am a great sinner, a very great sinner, my Savior is even greater. Amen? Only the forgiveness of my sin and restoration of a right relationship with God can save me. And friend, it's the same for you this morning. Only God's Son, Jesus Christ, can save you and me from the just punishment of a righteous and holy God. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus hung and bled on that cross for a reason. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, it's on the screen. Read it with me. It tells us that yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. You see, friend, Jesus died for your sins. He took your place and your punishment before a holy God who must punish sin. And Jesus stepped in and he allowed himself to be treated like a criminal that day so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be set free, so that you could have joy filling your life and filling your heart. Then he rose from the grave on the third day to prove to you and to me that he is not like the rest of the gods, the so-called gods of this world. You see, not even death could hold him. Not even the nails could keep him there. It was his love for you and for me that brought him back from, to life. And so today he lives, and today he's praying for you. He's praying that you would make a decision today to trust in him and to receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. The question is, will you come to him today? Will you come home today to God in Jesus Christ as your Savior? You remember that Jesus bled from seven places the blood of the Lamb of God covering every thought, every word, Everything you've heard, all that you've done with these hands, all the places you've walked and should not have been with these feet. He bled from his heart, from his back, for all of the times that we've been rebellious against our God in our hearts, saying, no, I'm doing it my way. No, I'm putting myself first. No, it's me today that's living on the throne of my heart. Jesus bled from those seven places to cover all your sin. And my prayer today that as we close, again, is that you would receive the invitation 
That if you need to respond to Jesus today, who stands with his arms wide open and says, Come, all who are heavy and weary laden, come. I'm going to give you rest. I've got peace. I've got joy. And that's what he wants to give. But you have to acknowledge that you've sinned. You have to admit. You have to say, you know what? This is something that I need. So as we do that, I'm going to invite you to come here to the front as we close. You see, Jesus wants you to, your relationship with him to be restored today. And up here in the front, there will be several men and women. When I ask them to come forward, they will come up to the front. They're going to stand up here, men and women, just like you, just like me. And all they're here to do today is to hopefully pray with you and restore that right relationship with Jesus Christ. That is so important. C.S. Lewis said this, If heaven and hell are not real, then nothing matters at all. But if heaven and hell are real, then nothing else matters at all. Friend, there is nothing more important in your life today than making sure that you are right with God before you leave this place.